0: Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Good to see you this morning. It is a joy to be with you. Um, Let's see here. We are today finishing our sermon series in the book of Philippians. We've been in Philippians for a couple of months. Uh, We've walked through passage by passage and we've looked at what the Apostle Paul, the author of Philippians has to say to the church in Philippi. And we've been pulling out uh, uh, details and teachings from this book of Philippians for what this looks like, not just to a church 2000 years ago, but for our church today. Um, It is known of course, by many as the epistle of joy. We've talked a lot about joy uh, over the course of this sermon series. Uh, and we've seen that Paul is going to great lengths, the apostle Paul is going to great lengths to detach the joy that the Philippians, uh, the, the, the joy of the Philippians from their circumstance. That joy is in something that runs beneath circumstance or should I say above circumstance. Uh, it is something that's totally, uh, de- it's dependent on something totally different from circumstance. And in our passage, Uh, Paul says something quite remarkable. He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any circumstance, that I can do anything through him who strengthens me. The question that I want to open our time with in this passage is, where is your joy today? What is your contentment based upon? I think that's the question that as we wrestle with Paul's closing words to this church in Philippi in his letter, the question that we would be invited to ask of ourselves is what is our contentment in? This passage is primarily, uh, the context of this passage is Paul expressing gratitude for the generosity of the Philippian church. They've sent him a gift uh, at long last and he gives them thanks. But then he gives this really important caveat that identifies for them, what he's most, uh, what he rejoices in the most, what he's most glad to see. And today, what, what I wanna do is I wanna look briefly at, at or I wanna look at the text, just kind of get an overview of what he, Paul says in the text. And then we're gonna ask, basically, we're gonna look at three points. We're gonna look at what Paul's inviting us to. We're gonna ask how or, or, or where we are invited to avail ourselves of what he's inviting us to. And then we're gonna ask how, so what, where, and how. What are we invited to is the first point. And to begin, let's just look at the passage. Let's jump right in. Paul, like I said a moment ago, is thanking the Philippians for their generous financial support. He rejoices in this and he commends them for their giving, but then he qualifies his commendation to make it clear what he's rejoicing in. And we get a window of sorts into the tension that Paul experiences as he receives financial generosity as an apostle. Listen closely as I read verses 10 through 14. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Then he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. We'll stop there. So Paul uh, gives them thanks, commends them, and then gives this qualification. And we're welcomed into this tension that he has. So on the one hand, Paul was in need and he was grateful for the gift. The apostle Paul, uh, uh, in case you weren't here with us at the beginning of this sermon series, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest, which means he can't get a job. He can't work for, to, to provide for himself. Uh, and so he's in a, a real uh, financial need. Uh, And so their gifts, the gifts of the church in Philippi really did serve to both provide for Paul's needs and to give him a great encouragement in his affliction. He says, thank you for joining me in my trouble. Uh, That same in, in verse 14, it's kind of you to share my trouble, share my affliction, to enter into this with me. So he's very encouraged, even as his needs are being met. But on the other hand, he was hesitant repeatedly in his ministry. We know from elsewhere in the Bible Paul was hesitant to request money and then even to receive it because it's worked against his ministry in the past. We read in his letters to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians that Paul had been accused of fleecing the sheep, which is a way of saying he'd been accused of preaching the good news and then taking a gift, right, to be in it for the money. And so repeatedly, Paul says, I'm not going to demand Payment. In fact, I'm not going to receive your gift. I'm just going to preach and then make tents. He was a tent maker. He 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 earned an income outside the church, um, so that he couldn't be accused of being in it for the money. And so he's abundantly clear here, even as he's thanking them. So the Philippian church was one of the few that did partner with him financially. But even as he receives their gifts and thanks them for it, he's clear what he's thankful for. Not that he needed their money, but because uh, of what it points to in them, what it demonstrates about them. Paul's thanksgiving uh, points to what God is doing in them as they give, listen to how he says it. So he talks about their partnership and then he says what their partnership means. And you Philippians, verse 15, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. There's some indication that Paul may have not let other people enter into this with him, that it was just the Philippians. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek, and here it is, the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And again, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, the source of Paul's joy in receiving this gift is in what the generous gift says about the Philippians. God is with you. God has been moving in your hearts. Your generosity as always points to the fact that the gospel is bearing fruit in your hearts, the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul gives this kind of compound interest analogy to the Philippians to explain when you're generous, God is keeping track of it, right? Your reward is growing. Think about the last time you gave money to someone, whether to the church or to a, A missionary or to some organization. Think about the last time you gave money. What was going on in your head? What was going on in your heart when that happened? What Paul says here clearly indicates that giving is no less spiritual than any other thing that we do. God is working in our hearts and minds as we give generously to others. Here in Philippians, Paul is certainly grateful for their gift. He doesn't ignore the reality of physical discomfort and need, but his concern here is the same as his concern elsewhere to help the Philippians find their true contentment, not in money, but in God. We see that in what is, I think, the heart of the passage. He thanks them for giving out of concern for him. And then he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be content. He's learned something. And this is what he he calls it, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is that secret? The secret is this, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And it's important to ask what Paul's actually talking about when he says this first. And so to understand what Paul's talking about, there's a couple of details in the context that we need to take into account as we try to understand and unpack what Paul means. There's kind of two layers of context. The first layer is this. In the immediate context, it's important to remember that Paul has primarily been talking about economic realities. He's been talking in his whole letter about living in a manner worthy of the calling. He talks about these wonderful things of being Christians like humility and unity and love and generosity. And then towards the end of the letter in the passage we looked at last week, Paul puts his finger on their anxiety and their anxiety would have been primarily with respect to money. The Philippian church was in a region known as Macedonia, which was an impoverished region and Christianity was on the margins. And so it's an already impoverished region. Region And Christianity would be on the margins of that society. So this was not a wealthy church. And so they would read this stuff about the glorious joy and life in the gospel. And they would have said, but what about, what about our needs? And Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. So Paul's talking about money in many ways. A few verses after this, uh, here in, later in chapter four, Paul's about to assure them that God will provide for their every need. Paul's point here is he's talking about money He says, economic reality does not affect his or anyone's ability to do what God has called them to do. In other words, material abundance is not the basis for contentment. contentment. This is one aspect of the secret that Paul's talking about. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're abounding or whether you've been brought low, God is with you, empowering you to do all things. The second contextual layer, in addition to the economic realities, um, is the prevailing view of human flourishing in Philippi, in Rome at this time. Stoic philosophy, um, in Stoic philosophy, which was a prevailing view of human flourishing, uh, self-sufficiency was the essence of all virtues. To be Stoic, to be a, the, the, the prime example of a Stoic human being, is that you are a self-sufficient human being. The one who conquered in a world marked by suffering is the one who had become independent of all things and all people. The Stoic doctrine was that man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. So to be totally self-sufficient is what it meant to be free, what it meant to be alive. When we consider this, then Paul's words here take on an additional level of color and meaning. Listen to how Paul talks once again, with this in mind. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul says, I have no need. I have learned in any situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I've learned the secret, I can do all things. You hear how Paul's talking. I know, I know, I can, I can, I'm not in need. He's using the language of the Stoics the leading teachers of his day, but then he flips the entire construct on its head. I've learned the secret. That was a big word, a familiar word in the hearer's names. He flips it on its head. His understanding of contentment is entirely different. Rather than being self-sufficient, the secret was being God-sufficient. In this, Paul demonstrates total freedom. He is totally and fully dependent on God who provides for him and strengthens him for every situation and who frees him from being attached to things in this world, which are fleeting and ever-changing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse is often quoted out of context to assume that the one who uh, uh, operates in the power of Christ is somehow invincible. This isn't a blanket statement about the abilities of a Christian. This is a blanket statement about the sufficiency of Christ for all that God has called you to do. Regardless of where and how you find yourself, God has given you all that you need because he has given you himself. The focus here isn't on what we wish we could do, but on what God has called us to do. This is what Paul's been talking about, all of these wonderful things about being a Christian, being humble, being loving, being gracious. Like I mentioned a moment ago, there is this stability, this peace, this joy that the Christian lives into and demonstrates to the world around. All of this, Paul says, is possible through Christ. That is what Paul is talking about. In the message translation, Eugene Peterson translates this verse this way. He says, whatever I have, Wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I can make it through anything in Christ who makes me who I am. So contentment, sojourn, is not about economic independence. It's not about emotional independence. It's not about physical independence. The way to peace, the way to contentment, to sufficiency, is not self-sufficiency, but the sufficiency of being in Christ. That's point one. The invitation that Paul gives to the Philippians is this. You want to know the secret of being content in any circumstance, whatever the situation, the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's this, you will only be sufficient when you find your contentment in the Lord, whose strength is made perfect in your weakness and through whom you can do all things. That's the invitation from the Apostle Paul. And that's great. The question is, how do we we get that? This brings me to the second point. The first point is the invitation of the text to find our contentment in the Lord. The second point is the question that that brings us to. How do we get this kind of contentment? The answer for Paul is quite simple. He learned it. Look at how he talks about it. He says, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret. In other words, it takes time. There's some things that we can simply be told, right? Our kids love eating snacks. A few years ago, my wife and I realized that we were running to the pantry over and over and over again. And so one day we told our kids, this is where the snacks are that you're allowed to eat. One and done. They've never asked where they are again. They remembered it perfectly right? We haven't had to reteach that lesson because it's important to them and they learned it. Most things, though, are not this way. You don't just hear it and learn it. I have a degree in physics. My undergrad degree is in physics. I was a physics teacher in high school for a couple years. One of the simplest concepts in physics is the relationship between force and acceleration, F equals MA. Super easy linear equation, easy relative term. Right now, I learned that I could explain that conceptually to the students and then I could teach them and give them some examples mathematically to see how it works out. But then if I go and give a test after doing all the explaining and showing them all the examples, you can imagine how that went. The students needed time to learn and to try all different kinds of situations, see how it applies. The same equation, the same lesson, same concept. It takes a little bit longer to learn. Matters of the heart and of character are like that. Just not on a piece of paper. These things are learned in and demonstrated through experience alone. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 11. When he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am through whatever situation I've been in to be content. Learning contentment is a process that takes place over time. And where do you learn contentment? What is the classroom for this particular lesson? The classroom is the real situations and circumstances of your life. There's nowhere else you can go than right where you are. The question is, do you know how to be brought low? And do you know how to abound? This lesson, we start learning pretty early. Right? When kids start playing games with one another, they learn really fast that a lot of games have winners and losers. So the question is, as a kid, you know, it's not a, a difficult concept to understand that some win and some lose. The question is, how do, you do, how do you deal with one or the other? When you abound, when you win, are you gonna be a sore winner? Are you gonna gloat? Ha ha! Or are you gonna say, good game, I enjoyed. Do you wanna play again? When you lose, which is just as hard, if not harder, how do you lose well without being a sore loser? That throwing a tantrum, without yelling at the person. And so we start to learn this lesson. And it's of course a sad truth to observe that many people never learn this lesson. But even for those who do, think about how we often, the actual lesson we often learn. It starts with, okay, we start with a taking turns approach. Okay, some people, some, some, some win, some lose. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And that's great, it's simple enough. Kids can learn, okay, sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. But then that starts to ring hollow when you lose several in a row. And then the taking turns concept kind of breaks down. And then we move on to the main lesson that most kids learn is that, oh, it's just a game. It's not that important. The most important thing is the person you're playing with and the fun that you're supposed to be having. And so you kind of minimize it. You say, it's just a game. Monopoly doesn't matter because it's fake money. The problem is, what about real money? Then it's harder to minimize it. Bumper cars, you get frustrated, you are like, ah, it's not, it's not a real game. The cars don't get damaged. But then what happens when you get in a car wreck and it's the other person's fault? How do you handle yourself there? The truth is we struggle with being brought low and we struggle with abounding. Because the lesson that Paul's talking about learning is something deeper than external circumstance. There's an internal circumstance, a circumstance of the heart, of the soul that needs to be addressed in each one of us. When we are brought low, we tend towards despondency or towards frantic pursuit of relief. When we abound, we find ourselves winners. We tend towards, at best, getting used to it and starting to try to protect what we have won finding our contentment in it. And that's because we're painfully concerned with ourselves. We are deeply self-interested, and it's not hard to see how both of those things, abounding and being brought low, lead to anxiety rather than contentment. If you do have it and you think you need it, then you're anxious to keep it. If you don't have it and you think you need it, then you're anxious to get it. When you're self-interested, the outcome of that is anxiety. We talked about this last week. I was at a cohort uh, with some pastors this past week um, that I'm grateful to be a part of. And this older man who's a mentor of sorts to me said, he gave us 30 minutes at the, it, kind of in the middle of the day as, as one of our breaks to spend time in Proverbs 23. He said, just spend 30 minutes in Proverbs 23. So we did. I wanna read the first five verses because I think it talks exactly about what we're talking about here. Proverbs 23 verses one through five says this, "'When you sit down to eat with a ruler, Observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do you see the scene that's being set there? You picture yourself eating with a king. He's wealthy. It's a super fancy meal. In a super fancy place, the proverb says, be careful about your desires. Be careful about what's going on in your heart as you're enjoying this meal. Don't desire what he has because riches are deceptive. Don't let your life become about chasing money. Why? Because the moment you have it, it'll sprout wings and fly away. Sometimes it seems like the more money you have, the more money you want. That's what the proverb is talking about. This touches on, this proverb also touches on a central teaching in the Bible. It's one of the 10 commandments. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. The question is this, what are your eyes focused on? Lindsay and I get to spend a lot of time in houses that are nicer than ours. I have the privilege of spending a lot of time with pastors who are older and more experienced and more mature than I am. I spend a lot of time with people whose lives seem at least from the outside in, to be easier than mine. What are your eyes focused on? Is it money? Are you rich? Are you wealthy and wanting more? Are you in debt and anxious to be out of it? Are you making less than those around you and anxious about questions of fairness and about how to make more? Is it your relationship with this or that person, be they a friend, a person you wish were a friend or someone you think of as your enemy? Is that what your eyes are on, that you wish that something was different? Is it your general circumstance in life? You have less time and freedom than you wish you had, more responsibilities than you wish you can handle, less people who you think care about you than should. Is your heart captivated with Christ, with the fact that you have all that you need, or is it focused on something that you don't have and wish you did have? Are you toiling to acquire that thing, as the proverb says, or are you discerning enough to desist? It reminds me of Hebrews chapter five. There's a verse that says solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Paul says, I've learned it. Learning contentment like this is training with constant practice to discern between good and evil. In light of Paul's invitation to contentment in the Lord, we should always be asking ourselves this question. What is threatening our contentment in Christ? When you think about what it is for you, here's the thing, that just may be that very thing that is threatening your contentment just might be the exact situation through which God is inviting you to learn contentment in him. There's a word that for this kind of learning that appears throughout the Bible, it's called repentance. Many people have a hard time with the word repentance. It rhymes with penance. People think that repentance is about trashing yourself and just thinking poorly about yourself and wallowing in guilt and shame. But whenever the Bible talks about repentance, it speaks about repentance as a gift of God's grace or something that leads to joy. Repentance happens when we realize that something has our allegiance or something has our attention, has our heart that is not God and what God has said. And so we own it and then we bring it before God and then set it aside, entrusting whatever it is to God and start looking at God instead of that thing. That's what repentance is. Looking away from something towards God, turning away from something and towards God. And as we do so, when we come in and through Christ, our Redeemer, We watch as God speaks words of forgiveness over that thing and begins to work renewal in the soil of our hearts. And the place where things come to our minds that the Holy Spirit brings to the forefront as opportunities for repentance is our everyday life. Let me put it this way. The reality is that the real circumstances of your life are the arena of your spiritual growth. Whoever you are, whether you have much or whether you have little, the circumstances in which you find yourself will bring before you challenges. They'll bring you suffering. And you will find in those moments, the temptation to avoid that very thing, to hit the eject button, to turn away from it, to medicate with something else. But the other invitation is from the Holy Spirit because it's in, it is there in the context of that real situation that God is to be found because God is the God of the real world, not the God of the world as you wish it were or the, the God of the you that you wish you were. As God meets with you in the context of your real life, he'll invite you to dry your eyes from being fixated on the things that concern you to being fixated on him and what he's doing. This is ultimately what repentance is, not wallowing in guilt, not trying to self-examine for the purpose of self-loathing, simply noticing where you are and how you are and looking to God and saying, I'm sorry, I haven't been looking at you as I should have been. And there at the same place where you find peace with God through Christ, you will also find a good father who's pleased to give you all that you need and you'll begin to taste contentment. This is what it means to know God. Jesus' first sermon recorded in the book of Mark is a little one verse sermon. I'm assuming it's summarized, but this is what Jesus says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why did the first sermon Jesus preached have at its heart repentance? Because this is the thing through which true belief in the gospel, this is the thing through which true fellowship with God comes. You and me coming to a realization of our deep need and bringing our need and nothing else to God and watching as God does the rest of the work in our lives. Which brings me to point three, because if you notice how Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter four, it's almost as though he's talking about himself and then he steps to the side. Look at how he does it, starting in verse 11. He says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. And then he steps aside through him who strengthens me. We've looked at the invitation to contentment. We've looked at where we learn this contentment. And then now we look for a moment at the one who ultimately does the work of making us, of giving us contentment you wanna know what bad repentance is. Bad repentance is repentance that has you looking at yourself and concluding, I know the right thing to do. I just need to do better. I know the right thing to do, I just need to do better. That according to Paul in Corinthians is the repentance that leads to death, worldly grief that leads to death. You know what good repentance is? Repentance that has you owning your failure and bringing it before God and being overcome with love and gratitude that God meets you with. There's a verse in the Bible in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is telling parables. He tells a parable of a lost sheep. And he says this crazy, he says this line. He says, there's more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents. He goes on and talks about other things, but he talks about joy being in heaven for one sinner who repents." And my wife was showing, you guys know those Instagram shorts uh, or YouTube shorts or whatever social media shorts, the things that, anyway, they're short videos. Um, You guys know what I'm talking about. I don't know why I feel like I need to explain. (laughs) But uh, uh, my, Lindsay was watching one and she showed it to me yesterday. And this pastor was a very charismatic pastor. Uh, I I can't capture exactly how he said it, but his clarification was really critical. Oftentimes we get this picture in that verse. There's most, there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. We picture angels rejoicing. That may be true, but I don't think the angels are rejoicing because we're told elsewhere in the Bible that the angels are just worshiping God. They're not looking at the sinners who are repenting. They're, they're before God saying, holy, holy, holy. You know who's rejoicing in heaven? Is God himself. That is the picture that we get when someone repents, there's, there's the story of the prodigal son, which you're familiar with, where the prodigal son is this, is this wayward son who goes off and commits a whole bunch of sins, squanders a fortune, and then he comes back to his father. And we're not just given a picture of this son welcomed back into the home for a party. The first image we get is of his father scanning the horizon and waiting for him to come back, hiking up his robes and running to greet his son, who's repentant. That's the picture we get there. That's the picture we get in the parable of the sheep. The father prepares a feast and this is so important. What is the good thing about repentance? Is it that the son is no longer doing bad things? No. Is it that the son is finally in a place where he's obeying his father? No, it's not that either. It's that the son is at the table sharing a meal with his father once again. Repentance is not about self-flagellation and being focused on ourselves and what we need to do better. If only I could just be a servant in my dad's house and I don't even have to look at him. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is coming and being welcomed back to the table to eat with your dad once again. We don't turn from our sins because it's a good thing to do. It certainly is, but that's not going to last. We're told in the scriptures, a very vivid picture, like a dog returns to its vomit, so we will return to our sin. We turn from our sins, not because we think it's a good idea, but because Jesus is alive and we know him. Jesus is the promised Messiah from Genesis 3, who came to save God's people. He came and died, rose again, sent the spirit to fill us up and fix our eyes on him once again, like we were unable to do ourselves. And his, currently, his current reign is one of invitation. He's reigning as king in heaven and his reign, the leading word in that reign is come to me. He's inviting us to come to him, to return to him, to see him, to experience him, to taste him, to know the power through which we can do all things. If you know God, that's the way that sin starts to taste bad. A sinless life is not appealing to us. I could stand here and tell you how much better your life would be if you just do what Jesus says. I could make some good arguments, but that's not gonna work. If you're thinking about your life and how much better your life would be if you just lived the Christian life, then that's just never gonna be compelling because the inbred cry of the human heart is, I'm just fine, thank you. Picture Eve in the garden. God says, do it this way. I'm just fine, I can see it for myself. Even if you're not fine, we are hardwired to think that we're the ones who know how to make it better for ourselves. But if your eyes are not on your own sinless life and are instead on the sinless life of another who is reigning and ruling, who is the fount of love and life and beauty, that is where transformation comes from. This is why worship is so important. It's why our heart posture in worship is so important. We are coming before the living God. It's why our own meditation on scripture is important. We have God's word in our pocket. Our heavenly father who loves us, gives us his good words for us to meditate on. And as we do so, Watch as he transforms our hearts. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that I can do all things because I think Christ was great and I'm trying to follow his example as though he's just a better version of Buddha? No, it's I can do all things through him. I'm in him, I'm with him, he's with me. No one can take him from me. This is what causes even a poor person to be generous. This is what causes a harsh person to become gentle. This is what causes an anxious anxious person to taste peace. I remember uh, one of the first times I ever truly listened to a sermon. Um, I uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home. um, And in high school, uh, I came, my girlfriend at the time, her family was a part of this church in Atlanta where I grew up. And I remember having an experience uh, through a series of conversations where I came to believe that God might exist, but I still wasn't, I didn't know anything about Jesus, but I was like, okay, maybe God exists. So I decided to listen the next Sunday, as I was going to church with my girlfriend and her family, I remember listening to this sermon. And I was really excited when the sermon scripture was read. It was, it was a crazy passage that you might know. It's Lazarus and the rich man. It's like the hell fires. Uh, sermon passage where there's Lazarus on one side, this gulf of, you know, that's uncrossable in this pit of fire where this rich man is. And he's crying out saying, please tell my family. So they don't, it's, it's a terrifying passage. So they, they read the scripture. And then I just remember actually, it was one of the first sermons I listened to. And I remember being utterly disappointed because I was in the room and I was thinking, Oh, Wow, maybe God exists, but here's a passage we're going to learn about God, God of judgment. I'm not crazy about that idea, but I want you to at least tell me about it. And I remember the main point of the sermon was just live in such a way that you can make other people smile. He gave illustrations like hold the door open for someone to brighten their day. Because like this rich man, some people are having a bad day. The challenging thing is that this preacher, well-meaning as he was, wasn't talking about God. Today, this is the plight of many churches. It's the case with some well-meaning but theologically liberal churches who've sought to remove the miraculous in order to try to reach a modern man and woman, but ultimately make the Christian message about ethics and moral living. It's a problem with some churches who are well-meaning politically conservative, who've sought to preach the gospel faithfully, but then have given all of their major focus to how we should fix the government out of a fear that we're abandoning our Christian roots. And so the focus of those churches are on political activism. It's the case with some well-meaning community-oriented churches who seek to live their life in community in a way that meets the needs of an increasingly individualistic and isolated age, but who emphasize community, period, rather than communion with God at the center. Uh, The reason I'm a pastor is not because I want to try to win an argument with you and try to give you a compelling picture of how you can live your life better. The reason I'm a pastor is because I have met God and I want you to too. I love systems and structures. I'm a systems guy. I have good ideas for how to make things better and run more smoothly, but the whole purpose of any system in the church is to create space where we can meet with God and with one another. Christianity is at its heart, a mystical religion, which means that there is a real felt spiritual experience of union with deity. There's more to meet, more than meets the eye in the world around us and to the way of salvation and to life. And this is what Paul points to in this passage. He says, I have learned the secret, God with me. This is the secret to being content in any circumstance. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He is here. He is within me. He is not removed in heaven. He's not making his angels do all the work while he sits detached on some throne in some room somewhere, arms crossed, waiting until he finally gets a chance to judge us and be done with the wicked. That's not the picture we get in the Bible of God. We get a picture of a loving father who's intimately involved, calling, beckoning, chasing down lost sheep because he wants to be with us, to share meals with us once again. Jesus died so that we could have everything, so that we could be invited into and have a way to be made, made clean enough to be back at the table with our heavenly father. The problem is that this requires sacrifice. It requires turning from one way and toward another. It requires abandoning our pursuit of the things that we think we want and need, and fixing our eyes on Christ and on Christ alone It takes a ton of practice, Sojourn. The good news is that Paul stands before the Philippians and he he, he doesn't say, this is what you need to do. You're all set for the rest of your life. He says, this is something that you can learn too. Having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice so that more and more with each passing day, you get transformed from one degree of glory to another as you fix your eyes on Jesus and follow him. The good news is that God is patient with us and that he's with us. But it does mean we have to let go. Jim Elliott, you might have heard of Jim Elliott. He's a well-known missionary martyr who died He was killed uh, on a mission field to, um, uh, to an unreached people group. And his best-known quote is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Christianity requires letting go of big and important things. But you are not a fool if you give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. We are hardwired to make our lives about what we cannot keep, chasing after wealth. But if we have the discernment to see that once we get it, that's the thing that'll fly off with wings, we'll come, we'll realize that we have been given a thing to pursue that won't sprout wings and fly away the rock of ages that's not going anywhere, the cornerstone, the one who is sent out of love for us to welcome us home. So Sojourn, may we be people who don't live as fools chasing after the wealth of the world, but who live as wise men, women, children, fixing our eyes on God, pursuing that which he has laid before us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We are so grateful for this morning. I pray that you would help us to do a deep dive into the soil of our hearts. With your help, Holy Spirit, help us to answer the questions like, where are we struggling to find contentment in other things rather than you? What circumstances are we avoiding right now that are precisely the place that you want to meet with us and renew us? What does it look like to bring these things before you, before one another side by side as we live lives of repentance together? What does it look like maybe even for the first time for some of us to finally let go and allow your strength to be made perfect in our weakness? Help us Lord to stop projecting strength. Help us to lean into our weakness and their taste the power that you work powerfully within us for your good, for, for our good, for your glory. Help us to find our contentment in you, to, to learn this secret that Paul is talking about, that he doesn't keep a secret, but he writes plainly for us in scripture, that you have given us all that we need. Let that be our hope and our joy. We ask in Christ's name, amen.